And welcome to another episode of the Alertas Podcast, brought to you by Alertas Press. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join me as I explore the world of iconic writer Robert Anton Wilson, his reality labyrinth of ideas, and the many, many currents of influence running through them. Visit us at alertaspress.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. And help us find the others by subscribing, commenting, rating, reviewing. You know what to do. It helps more than you might think. In our last episode, I discussed magical thinking with Lionel Snell, more widely known in the chaos magic circles by his pen name, Ramsey Dukes. In today's episode, I discuss Marshall McLuhan with the director of the McLuhan Institute, Andrew McLuhan. Andrew McLuhan, welcome to the Laritas podcast. Thank you very much. So tell me if I've got this right. You are the eldest son of Eric McLuhan, the eldest son of Marshall McLuhan. Is that correct? So far, so good. Awesome. And you run the McLuhan Institute, which does a variety of things. It sounds like the one I caught my attention first was archivist, I think. Yeah, it's a bit of an umbrella term. It's a thing that I formed just about five years ago now. You know, like a bit of an umbrella, a a net, uh, something to catch all these different things that that go on here, which is managing our archives that my dad kept, making those archives and and teachings available, accessible. And then my my own work in study and research and taking things forward as best I can. Cool. It sounds like you've been brewing up a newsletter and and just completed an online class, if I understood correctly. So the newsletter is uh, supposed to drop October 1st, um, digitally and physically. I committed to doing a year's worth of monthly physical newsletters that I'll mail out on the 1st. But then I'll also, you know, I don't like paywalls. I think information needs to be out there. So basically the same information that I'm putting in the mail out newsletter, subscription newsletter, I'll also release over over the month in four installments to give you a bit of an incentive or a reward to, you know, supporting the work I'm doing by buying a copy of the physical newsletter. And then you also get something cool to hold on to and put on your shelf. You know, I don't think a stack of PDFs looks as impressive on your shelf as uh, a stack of newsletters or books, but. So yeah, the newsletter is coming along and I think it's going to be great. Um, McLuhan.substack.com if you want to sign up for that. And then the class, yeah, in um, fall 2020, I started doing a, an extended unit on understanding media, Marshall's 1964 book. And I was only going to do the first seven chapters, seven of 33. <laughs> but um, my students uh, halfway through basically said, well, you got to do the whole thing, right? So it ended, it ended up being 36. I, I did a couple classes at the beginning just to provide context for Marshall McLuhan and how he came to study technology and culture 
and how he came to write this book, Understanding Media, in 64. And then it, so all in all, it ended up being 36 three-hour classes, which is a lot. <laughs> and I did it the way through, and some people joined in later. Other people got interested along the way. So I'm actually one-third the way through the second time around. So yeah, I have a new group of students, and we're going to start part two, probably beginning of October as well. And if you're interested in that, well, I guess sign up for the newsletter, but uh, I offer the class through grayarea.org, which is a really cool institution in uh, San Francisco. Nice. We'll be sure and make uh, those links available in the show notes to get everybody tuned in, everything you've got going on. Yeah, thank you. Well, as I mentioned, uh, I was listening to you on another podcast and you recommended the Playboy interview with Marshall in 1969 as uh, a good place to start. And as I mentioned to you before the podcast, I started reading that uh, when we started discussing this and I get about five pages in and then I kind of fade out. And then the next time I get about five more pages and, and uh, so slowly digesting that, it's really seems like it's something that I could study for a long time. Well, so, so now I'm I'm actually questioning whether that is a good place for people to start. <laughs> it seems a, a bit of a difficult place to start. I have been trying to wrap my head around McLuhan for a while. Maybe I had the wrong sources, but I've really struggled to get things, particularly, and I think I got too hung up maybe around this hot and cold media business. And, and mm -hmm. as I'm learning more now, it, that seems like it might have gotten me off track just trying to understand what that was all about. But this Playboy interview has really helped me feel like for the first time I get a feel for the man and, and what he was talking about. And, and, and it resonates a lot. So, you know, um, I've, I've discovered a lot of people approach Marshall McLuhan's work as if it were an academic text. Like people think understanding media is an academic textbook, but it's not. I mean, there's no mm. footnotes. There's few citations. It's it's really it's written in a much different tone. It's not. It wasn't written as an academic text. It doesn't try to be. It shouldn't be approached that way. And secondary sources are a very limited help because they don't tend to approach the work in in quite the right way either. I've discovered, uh, and part of partially doing this course helped me with this. But I've discovered the best way to approach it is to approach it as if it were poetry, because it is a kind of poetry. Poetry doesn't need to rhyme. It, it works on resonance, and it works on condensation. That poetry is, is condensed thought or word or language. Mm -hmm. And you don't, you don't sit down and read a book of poetry just cover to cover. You know, you take, you take your time with it. You maybe read a couple lines even and pause and look at the structure and how the words and ideas play off each other. And really, I found that's the most fruitful way to read McLuhan's work, because in the end, the meaning comes from you. You know, it, it does help to to approach it a little bit obliquely or poetically, at least. Interesting. What strikes me is, is when we talk about the alphabet and how it brings, or the phonetic alphabet and how it brings this linearity, poetry, as you're discussing, it almost seems like a way to try to break that linear trance in a way. Exactly. Um, well, wow. this was one of Marshall's major challenges is how to how to get his thoughts and ideas and things across with the constraints of the phonetic alphabet. 
right? Mm-hmm. So in a, in a certain sense, that's actually not the best way. Um, how do you, you know, how do you make nonlinear thinking uh, relatable in a linear fashion, which is what you're doing when you're trying to do this by the written word or the typed word or whatever. So a lot of people actually prefer to listen to speeches of Marshall McLuhan or interviews, mm. things like that. And in fact, one way that Marshall approached that problem was he stepped back from writing and moved more toward dictation. In the writing of Understanding Media, it, it actually began as a, a report delivered in 1960. And he spent um, the years between 60 and 64 revising and cutting and taking out connections and basically distilling into poetry that material. Wow. I'm a little speechless that it makes so much sense now that I've been doing this deep dive into Marshall's work and, and understanding where he's coming from. There's a there's a really great speech available. The video is online at marshallmcluhanspeaks.com. And it's called Living in an Acoustic World. From, it's a 1974 speech Marshall McLuhan gave to, I think, the University of South Florida or Southern Florida. And it's all about the difference. Well, it's about many things, as you would expect, but primarily it's about the difference between the types of space created by the eye or experienced by the eye and that created and experienced by the ear. So we're talking about the world as formed by the phonetic alphabet versus the world as formed before and after the phonetic alphabet was was in charge. And we're in the latter category at the moment. The main distinctions, and they're very helpful for understanding what's happening today, is that the eye as an organ, as a sensory organ, a mode of perception, and keep in mind everything that we know about ourselves in the world comes through our senses, right? Uh, It's the senses first, and then what we do with that information. But the world, as experienced by the eye, the eye sees forward, it sees in one direction, Mm. and it sees one thing at a time. It goes from here to there, to there, to there, to there. So it's about linearity. It's about rationality. It's about orderly progression, predictability. It's about goals, you know. Uh, A to B to C to D to E to F to G, about recognizing things in that manner. When you think about it, you can see how that led to, you know, the Industrial Revolution and things like that. But the world of the ear is much different because sound comes at you from all directions at once. It's a sphere, uh, Mm. a resonant sphere, and it has less to do with logic and rational connection than resonance and harmony and Mm. simultaneity versus sequentiality. So all in that once rather than one thing at a time. These these different modes of experience lead to very, very different people, which lead to very, very different cultures. And for us humans, and I guess by extension, the rest of, of the organisms, it leads to a very different world. So yeah, that's a, a very uh, 1974 speech. I I highly recommend it. Okay, that yeah. So you just went into um, a lot of what I've been wrestling with. So this, it, I like the way he put it is that there was what three major technological revolutions, I'll call them, and the first mm-hmm. was the phonetic alphabet, 
And, and so what that did being a very visual medium, but also kind of before we had maybe images and, and what we call ideograms, where there was a kind of a visual image that represented a word. And then the phonetic alphabet switched to these kind of abstract characters. And that's and, such and, a huge difference because right. the phonetic alphabet took away the meaning from the symbol, mm. which is huge. Right. One of the words you you focused on a variety of different things when we we switched to uh, it's not a switch, I guess, but there's a sensory imbalance, right? We're by going to the phonetic alphabet, we're we're moving from acoustic space to visual space. But another way to say is it's just the whole balance of how we use our senses changes and that changes us. Exactly. And that's that's one of the foundational principles uh, which Marshall discovered, I guess, or um, synthesized and operated on is that, you know, our senses, uh, all our senses, and there are dozens of them really, aside from, you know, just the conventional ones we think of, but they all exist um, in a kind of balance with each other and a Mm. ratio among them. When you affect one sense, you affect them all necessarily. He found he knew this for for actually decades before he actually came across or was directed to the work of a French guy by the name of Jacques Luciran. Jacques Luciran was uh, a prominent figure in the French uh, resistance, World War II. And he wrote a book called And There Was Light. One day at the Center for Culture and Technology in Toronto, somebody came by and said, uh, Dr. McLuhan, I just translated Understanding Media into Braille. And uh, I thought you should know, at the same time, I was working on this book, And There Was Light by Jacques Luciran, and I think you'd be very interested in it. Marshall checked it out, and sure enough, it's a firsthand account by Mr. Luciran of how, at age six or so, he became suddenly blind. He lost Mm. his visual sense completely over a couple of days, an accident. A couple days later, he's blind for the rest of his life. But the remarkable thing, and what Marshall found very useful, is that he talks about how, as the visual sense dimmed down, his other senses perked up. And this is this is a phenomenon that we all know about anecdotally, but maybe we don't pay as much attention to, but it's a very common thing. And it, it extends across, but when you when you affect one sense, you affect them all. When you depress one sense, the other ones perk up. Like you notice how um, when somebody's trying to listen to something intently, they close their eyes. Right. Right. So that's just a very a small example of it. And it doesn't have the same effect of actually going blind, but it gives you it gives you an idea. So, you know, this this is just further evidence of the power of our senses to shape our experience and our reality, because, you know, it's something that we make after all. Right. So the idea then that our new media technologies change our sense ratio and then and thus change our consciousness, as I understand it, that'd be fair. Yeah, they change our our consciousness. They change our experience of reality, our experience in our image of ourselves. So our identities and, you know, by extension, they change our cultures. They change everything. Hmm. So we create this new technology and then this this technology then changes 
everything about us. Yeah, or as as Culkin, Father Culkin said, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. This is something that you can observe pretty easily. I mean, think about pop culture is a great way to see uh, just how out of touch we are, right? Think of Elvis Presley, right? Mm. When you think of Elvis Presley, do you think of a controversial figure? I, I don't so much anymore, but I know he was back then. Well, this is the thing. Like to somebody today, if you showed them like a video of Elvis or a song or whatever, they would say, you know, that's that's pretty tame stuff, right? In fact, it's boring. When Elvis was new and big, while he delighted the young, he horrified the old. Yes, so it's, it's pretty benign stuff. And the reason is, is that he appealed to the tastes, the aesthetics of the generation of that time that were kind of coming up, right? The generation whose senses and tastes and preferences had been molded by a particular technological soup, <laughs> you know, yeah. the television. early television, late radio kind mm. of era. Now, today, th- there's no sure sign that your your past relevance than when you hear something on the radio and it's just abrasive to your ears, you know, or, you know, you see a video or new styles and you're like, oh God, that's just awful. Like, how can anybody think that's appealing at all? But it is. And the reason is that we have a different sensory makeup than the people coming up behind us. So it's a, it's a sure sign that things have changed in a big way when um, tastes have changed and the expression of, of art in particular undergoes major changes. The degree of change is in direct response to the degree of change we're experiencing on a technological level. And Marshall used this um, to great effect in his work. This is why he, he relied so heavily on the arts, because the thing is that artists, you know, whether we're talking visual artists, painters, or we're talking poets, or we're talking singers and songwriters or people making fashion. The artists are are people in society who are constantly sharpening their perceptive faculties, right? They're always trying to experience new things and explain them or show them to us. Because of the way that our senses, the shape our senses are in, these can be very abrasive. But at the same same time, it can be very exciting for younger people. The thing is, our sense is dull with age, right? So because because artists are are out there on the front line, constantly sharpening their senses, they give us a bit of insight into what's coming over the horizon. Marshall borrowed this from Ezra Pound, who said, the artist is the antenna of the race. Mm. And Marshall kind of carried this metaphor forward to the Cold War period when he said that the artist was the dew line, the distant early warning line, which is telling us of of the massive change coming over the horizon in time for us to react to it. Yeah, what I got is that we are all immersed in this media technology to the extent that it's really invisible to most of us. And the artists just more in tune and aware of their, their surroundings and their circumstances and their culture. This is um, what's behind the medium is the message, 
right? Marshall says, you know, we've always been more changed by the nature of the technology than the use to which we put it. Another word for medium in this context is environment. Mm. It's the environment created by technology that changes people more than the technology itself. So it's kind of a, an environmentalism. That's why they developed this term media ecology to describe, you know, how we might do something about that. Because ecology, oh, my dad said ecology is not a spectator sport. You know, if, mm. if, if all we did in terms of our natural environment was study how bad it's getting out there in terms of climate change and industrial pollution and everything, if we never actually did anything about it, our life expectancy isn't looking too good. So the same thing goes with technology. It's like we have to we have to actually take an active hand in creating a better environment for ourselves. Marshall McLuhan believed that this was something that was quite possible. He said, we can think things out before we put them out. Mm. I tend to agree. Part of what gives me hope is that Human ingenuity knows no bounds. Uh, and now you might say that the road to, hell, road to hell is paved with good inventions, but I think it might also pave the road out because I think human ingenuity gets us into this mess, mainly through ignorance or you know, not, not caring or not wanting to know. But I, I think uh, if we put ourselves to the actual problems, I'm very confident that we can we can design ourselves out of these situations as well. Is that what you would refer to then as applied McLuhanism? I don't know yeah. if that's the right. Okay. So as I understood it, uh, Marshall originally felt that we really couldn't predict the effects of these technologies, and therefore yeah. we obviously couldn't control them, but he later changed his mind on that. Yeah, that's really interesting. In the early 1950s, he was of the opinion that the forces at work are too great to be truly understood uh, or, and or controlled. But something happened which changes, changed his mind. And that's interesting. What actually happened was he, he spent a couple of years in very, very deep study. And uh, he came, he turned the opinion around and believed that, in fact, it, these processes can be understood and can be, you know, done more intentionally uh, than otherwise. Where do you see that at right now? I, my mind is going in all kinds of different directions. Like when you talked about the artist, I thought about the, the media people are producing on social media and how it's kind of changing and evolving as we've moved from Instagram to Snapchat to TikTok. And there's a certain... There's a certain form or shape or structure that each one of those media imposes on the content. And I, I can't really interpret where that's all going, but I'm, <laughs> I'm just wondering, I'm wondering what, what you're seeing uh, with social media and smartphones, obviously being, not obviously, but maybe being kind of the cutting edge of media technology today mm. and wh where that's taking us or, or where's the potential to shape the future here. Well, I'm not sure that smartphones are are the cutting edge anymore. I think that's um, things like AR and VR on the horizon, or you know, closer than the horizon, closing every day, are going to change 
uh, I believe our reliance on that device we all currently have in our pockets. They haven't quite figured out the right way to do it yet because people don't walk or want to walk around with VR headsets on and or AR glasses even uh, all the time, things like that. So they, they have some work left to do, which hopefully will give us a bit of time to consider what the consequences might be. You know, people who developed the iPhone were not thinking, uh, were not considering what 2022 was going to look like, you know, our reality today, where we're so beholden to these devices. You know, if you were to, I do this fun exercise with kids um, where we look at the service and disservice environment uh, that accompanies the smartphone, you know, all the things it takes for, you know, our cell phone networks to be there, all the support services like the power lines, the industrial, mm. uh, all the, you know, all the parts, all the natural resources, all the manufacturing, all the education, all the technology, all the things that, that create a structure that supports it. And then our reliance on it, all the things we do with it, you know, we wake up in the morning because it's beeping at us. We go to bed at night by the gentle glow of the screen, you know, and especially with kids, it's like how they interface with reality and with their friends and everything. And um, we go through this exercise where we kind of map all that out on a big board and they see how everything's kind of enmeshed together and part and parcel. And then at the end of it, I say, okay, now imagine you wake up tomorrow and keep in mind, this is like grade five students. Okay. Like 10 year olds. I say, now imagine you wake up tomorrow and your smartphone doesn't work and it's never going to work again. This is not a glitch. <laughs> this is the future. Right. And the audible gasp mm. and the silence that accompanies it because it's all they know. A 10 year old doesn't know about a world without these things run on these things. Right. It's all they know. And the horror of, well, I don't know how to do literally like anything except maybe wipe my butt, you know, like it doesn't, they can't process that. But, but this reveals just how, just how much these things have taken over and how much we've given them. You know, it's not even that they've taken over. It's like we've handed it over to them. Right. So I think what technology companies need to do is they need to do that exercise before they ship it, you know? So they need to think, okay, well, how do we, how could we account for these things and, you know, maybe design <laughs> to mitigate some of these things before it happens? I think that's entirely reasonable uh, thing to do. It's also not something any of them are likely to do voluntarily. Right. And I mean, why should they? really it's uh it doesn't really help their bottom line but this is you know what what we have governments for you know i wrote a piece some years ago called from uh, snake oil to silicon and i looked at the early history of uh, the formation of the fda the food and drug administration and the food and drug safety act in the uh, early mid 20th century uh, early 20th century. And, um, you know, there was a time when, for example, the pharmaceutical industry was essentially unregulated. Mm. They had a free hand. 
and uh, what happened was um, people uh, people got sick of literally sick of being poisoned by tainted meat in cans and stuff um, because there was no real oversight. It was self-regulation um, because surely you don't want to kill your customers because you want to make money. So, you know, we can trust companies to regulate themselves. Well, eventually people died and people got too upset and it created the political will to create, uh, you know, some sort of regulation. And now imagine no food company and no no drug company would have been too hot about this idea okay i imagine they would have said look if we have to if we have to study things if we have to do human you know animal trials human trials we have to run through all these hoops it's going to delay our products going to market by years you know there's that's unfair there's you know you're going to kill competition how can a company survive that this, exactly the same objections a tech company would put up today. But is Pfizer or Bayer hurting? <laughs> you know, what does their bottom line look like today? Are they worse off because they have to go through all these hoops in order to make sure that their products are, and this is the threshold, safe and effective? No, they're making more profits than they ever have, but we're all better off for it. And I think until we come to that kind of threshold with our technological uh, services, quote unquote, there's not going to be the political will to do anything. And I bet you if we did it in 50 years, uh, we might look back if we're still around and say, gee, maybe we could have done that a couple of decades earlier. Uh, And tech companies aren't going to be hurting. And I think we'll all be better off for it. I'm feeling like I'm too in the thick of it. Or I don't know. I'm just having trouble understanding. Let's say we did come to that point where we regulated technology in, yeah. in the way we're talking about. What would you see as an action from that? Like, what would be something the government could regulate that would be for the greater good of us all? You know, this is the difficult thing. And I use I use the the FDA or the pharmaceutical or the food companies as an analogy, but but it's not a perfect analogy because the threshold in pharmaceuticals and foods is uh, this simple phrase, safe and effective. And what does safe and effective mean in terms of technology? Mm. Well, what it means in, in our interpretation today, and this is how we regulate it today, is that you make sure that your phone doesn't blow up in your face. You know, so we make sure that the components don't emit, uh, you know, harmful frequencies or radiation. And the batteries aren't going to melt your face off and things like that. But none of that accounts for how the smartphone reshapes your senses, reshapes right. yourself, reshapes your identity, reshapes our society. How do you what? What ingredient is that that you can tack on to safe and effective? This is the dilemma. And what's the answer? Well, I think the answer is getting some people together and thinking about it and figuring it out. I mean, I don't, it, we don't have those answers, but that right. doesn't mean that we shouldn't look for them. Yeah. But- and this is, this is what Marsha McLuhan 
dedicated his life to was um, coming up with answers, but more importantly, coming up with frameworks of questions for how we achieve those answers. Okay, so this is this is why one of the crowning achievements of his of his life's work was the development of of what we call the laws of media. And that is that Marshall and my father, Eric McLuhan, in the early 1970s, set out to discover if there were any laws of media in the same way that we have laws of uh, physics or gravity or anything else. Are there constants in human innovation? Are there things which technologies do that all technologies do? And this is the ter- determining factor because, you know, a lot of technologies do a lot of things, but what they what they found in order for it to be a law, quote unquote, um, it has to be consistent. And they discovered, looking at it, that um, all technologies do these four things. Um, which isn't to say that they don't do more, but they do at least these four things. And that's helpful um, because it gives you a starting point in terms of understanding um, the nature of technology and the effects that it mo- might have. Uh, the four things, very quickly, are that um, all technologies enhance or amplify the human function um, the speed, they make something more convenient or faster or easier. I mean, that's why we innovate, you know, to solve a problem or, you know, otherwise do something more than our body and senses and mind can naturally do. It's to exceed that, uh, that, and that started with, uh, things like speech, um, and the use of tools, the development of tools. Um, at the same time, and these things, speaking of acoustic and visual space uh, and sequential and simultaneous, these things all happen at once, these four things. So mm. at the same time that you enhance something, um, you obsolesce something. And, mm. and that doesn't mean that you kill it, but that when you invent a new way of doing things, um, it takes over from the old way of doing things. Right, so the smartphone took over from television and radio and all the rest of it. It doesn't mean that we don't still have television and radio and all the rest of it, but it takes a back seat. Um, its role, its nature has changed uh, as the new thing becomes the dominant means. The old things are suppressed, um, and it also brings back the way we used to do things. So it retrieves something from the past. And if you push it to its extreme, it reverses its characteristics. So um, I like to use the highway uh, as an example, because it's pretty simple. We can all see it. You know, the highway was an innovation uh, to enhance uh, the volume and speed of transportation, right? We want to, a four lane highway is going to move more people more quickly than a a two lane highway. Um, At the same time, it obsolesces the two-lane highway and other forms of transportation um, because instead of having to drive to the train station, we just drive to our destination. You know, it takes out some steps. Um, what it brings back from the past, I think, is um, the river. You know, the mm. river, our, our, our cities used to be organized before they were organized around roads, before they were organized around rail lines, they were organized around rivers because rivers were the sites of mass transportation. 
Okay. So the superhighway or the big highway brings back the, the notion of the river as a, or lake as a mode of transportation. But if you put too many cars on the highway at once, you get a traffic jam. So it, it turns from a place of convenience to a place of inconvenience. Um, and that's, that's a, a series of things, of questions you can use. What does it enhance? What does it obsolesce? What does it bring back? And if you push it too far, what happens? How does it flip or reverse or complementary characteristics emerge? Those four questions can be used to look at any medium whatsoever. And the, you know, the, the other part of that book, Laws of Media, The New Science, that my dad finished in 1988, that he and Marshall developed in 72 on, is that it expands this idea of medium. So they take as a medium all human innovation. Anything that a human does or makes, uh, any innovation is uh, a technology that has these kind of revolutionary consequences. So that's one major difference and a huge contribution of McLuhan thought to the study of media is taking it from simple communication into everything that humans make or do. Um, you know, as uh, technology and innovation as an area of study. It's a bit of a difference. Yeah, really expands it quite wide. But um, the idea that media, that technology reshapes our senses. And when we look at applied McLuhanism, it seems like looking forward in the future, his, his uh, first thing is we need to be aware of how the media is shaping our senses yeah, and, and the impact of what a reshaped sensory balance would, would be. And, and then if I'm looking at it, we can use kind of these laws as a, as a framework to, to look at that. It's a starting point. The, right. um, you know, it's, it's the blessing and curse of our age um, that we live in this period in which technological change happens so fast that we don't have time to adjust. The fallout from that is you just have to look around, even look into your own life if you're willing to, to do that. Um, but um, this is also the blessing. So um, Marshall, uh, you know, mixed blessing, but Marshall um, liked to bring up Bertrand Russell, who I believe mm. said that if we only raise the temperature of the bath water by a degree every hour, we wouldn't know when to scream. Right. And the thing mm. was, um, a few hundred years ago, the rate of technological change was much slower. Um, with a slower rate of change, we're less likely to notice it because we're more likely to adjust to it. Right. And that's a, that's a ratio that, that holds. The less time there is to adjust, the more time there is to make adjustments, I suppose, uh, to notice things. So uh, we're, in, we're in an age where um, you know, the temperature, the bath water increases exponentially. Um, and that's the thing is like, if you sit in a bath and you just add a bit of hot water, you can raise the temperature of your bath pretty hot um, to the point where if somebody came into the room and were to put a toe in the water, they'd be like, oh, how can you be in there? Right? But you'd be <laughs> right. Too yeah. So this is 
this is the, the paradox of our time and the opportunity of our time is that we're able, you know, it's no coincidence that Marshall McLuhan came up with this stuff in the 20th century, not in the 17th century. You know, we weren't culturally in a place to be able to understand these things um, any earlier than we have. Uh, and I'm actually very, this is the other reason I have a lot of hope is, you know, Marshall McLuhan first said the medium is a message in the spring of 1958, you know, hmm. uh, and he was actually making a comment to a group of radio broadcasters who were scared shitless about television, you know, and Marshall was trying to tell him, you know, television isn't going to kill you guys. It's going to take over. It's going to change what you do, you know, so you really, you really don't need to panic. You just need to adjust. The medium is the message. Um, but people thought he was crazy. You know, the medium is the message is the message. And one interviewer said to him, Dr. McLuhan, why, why isn't the message the message? And he said, you know, to this comment of what a medium is, where would you look for the message in an electric light? You know, the message of the electric light is uh, a city that uh, factories that can operate 24 hours. The message is all the things that electric light enables. It's not, you know, the little things that we do with them, the medium, the environment created by these technologies is the message. And you know what? I can, here's what gives me hope. In mm. the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, come on, McLuhan, the message is the message. Even today, you'll get people saying that's just stupid. The message is the message. But I can have a conversation with a class. I can give a little talk and show some examples of Marshall using the medium as a message. And people are like, well, yeah, you know, obviously, um, you know, the, the world that was created by the smartphone is much more uh, a determining factor than what I'm tweeting on a daily basis. You know, the medium is the message. It's obvious now. And that gives me hope because I think we're, we're getting to a point culturally where um, we can recognize not just that we need change. We, we all know that. We all feel that. It's as, as existential a threat as climate change, and we all know it. We're all stressed out and anxious as hell, and we don't know who we are and what our bodies are and what anything means. Um, I think we're now in that position where we're willing to face um, our part in creating that mess and maybe either holding other people accountable or um, holding ourselves accountable um, to do something about it. it. Just the fact that we're waking up to the need yeah. seems huge. It's huge. Yeah, it is. Um, and I, yeah, I was reading before our interview just about how it's that acute change. I mean, you can, you can just see it when you think about it, when he talks about his three revolutions, starting with the phonetic alphabet and then the printing press, and you can see those, you know, is, is getting exponentially more and more, but all of a sudden you hit to the, the telegraph. Uh, first of all, just to me, the brilliance of noticing that the telegraph was the, uh, the advent of the electronic revolution. It's something I'd never considered before. Mm -hmm. um, it seems very insightful. But then how just exponentially we're going from there with, uh, yeah, TV to, well, radio to TV to 
smartphones and internet and so yeah. on. And the crazy thing is, is the period of time in which that has happened has been right. so compressed. It's wild. Yeah. I, I grew up, uh, I remember my elementary school got Apple computers when I was in third grade. Wow. And, and as I was going through college in the early nineties, I started getting into Usenet. And then I think the Mosaic browser launched right as I was graduating and, and so on and so forth. And now I have to ask my kids how to help me set up something. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, I feel like it's starting to pass me by. Yeah. Well, the thing about it is, and you know, I have kids who are six and eight years old and the thing about it is, um, the barrier, the barrier for entry, you know, it's, it's no, it's no doubt that literacy is dying because mm. the barrier for entry between a book and a smartphone is laughable. How much training does it take to be able to read a book? How much training does it take to be able to use a smartphone? Any two-year-old can be handed a smartphone, and I see it happen all the time, and just about instantly be able to manipulate it and use it and do stuff with it. A book, uh, a book takes a lot of work to be able to use. Um, so <laughs> very, very different order of things. And to, to get the benefit of the book, i.e., um, you know, what happens to you as you're trained how to read and write, you know, that patterning on yourself and your senses, how you think, how you react, it takes it takes years to set, to soak that in. Um, and it happens just about instantly with a smartphone. You know, mm. uh, this is the challenge of, of literacy now and why, uh, you know, literacy doesn't run things so much anymore. I'm still, uh, I, I, I get where you're going because I've been studying this, but when you say literacy is dying, yeah. um, there's a part of me that just finds that really shocking. And well, even with the smartphone, we see how much the phonetic alphabet is still part of the phone and how we use it. But at the same time, yeah. I can see how that is fading out. Pretty um, quick. Right. Emoji is a pretty good indication. Ah, emojis. I was thinking of meme culture and, and well, that too. phonetics in there, but it's almost like that's like a, an ideogram, a, a fragment, a, uh, mm -hmm. a visual. Uh, and not even, of, not even emoji, but um, look at when you text somebody or even write an email or something or comment on something, um, you have to be adding like, uh, three exclamation marks and like LOL and mm. all this stuff because we meet the, the phonemes aren't enough. They're too ambiguous and we can't handle that anymore. It's uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. We can't take it. So we have to exclamation, exclamation, ha ha ha, LOL, you know, string emojis. Uh, in order to make ourselves feel better and make sure we're not being misunderstood. 
Right. Creating some nonverbal context around the, mm -hmm. the fragment. Well, we mentioned augmented reality. Are there other technologies that you see that are um, emerging that are have the potential to drastically shape our sense ratio? Is that mostly what catches your eyes as a McLuhan scholar? I mean, this is the thing is that we're able to, it's so easy now uh, to create these tools that uh, have massive consequences for ourselves. Massive. Um, you know, because the technology is, is so distributed and so available, like all you really need, you know, there was, there was a time in the dawn of computing, right? Like access to those tools, you know, nobody could afford a computer that filled up your room, <laughs> you know? Um, but when all these things became cloud-based, uh, it changed the game. Now, you can start a technology company in your garage with a couple of computers because you can rent server space. It's all cloud-based stuff. So, um, you know, it becomes easier and easier to create more and more powerful things. Um, I, I pay, honestly, I pay limited attention. Um, people pass stuff on to me because, uh, hey, check this out, check that out. Um, you know, really, my mission here is to preserve and conserve the work of my father and grandfather and make it available, make it accessible. And when accessible in, in two meanings of the word, just so people have access to it, um, but also to make it, you know, understandable if I can. So that's why I'm speaking to you today, uh, because it's it's part of how hopefully through dialogue uh, we can we can reach mutual understandings. We can use these tools to help us, um, you know, change the way we think about things. Uh, because as my dad said, media ecology is not a spectator sport. I'm not an academic. I'm not interested in publishing papers and journals. Um, I'm interested in, uh, you know, as I, as I said, it's so easy. Any idiot can change the world. Um, changing the world unintentionally is, is pretty, pretty easy. Changing it uh, on intentionally for the better, and we have to figure out what that means, is a much more difficult prospect and kind of um, what I'm trying to do or help it sounds like, um, well, what stands out to me is just raising awareness, which we talked about, but just okay. raising awareness. I thought awareness. you were going to say grandiose, but. Uh, oh, no, not at all. Um, I, I, uh, I wish there was more. Um, yes, really, we've been, we've been covering on this podcast a lot of the big influential thinkers hmm. um, and, and, McLuhan is just blowing me away right now about uh, how resonant it is with my own thoughts and where we're going and how technology shapes us and how we can, well, just what, what we've been talking about, just raising our awareness about how technology does shape us is going to uh, lead to just further like 
paying attention. How is this going to affect us? And, and where is this going to lead us? And, and should we think about this before we do it kind of things? It's really remarkable. That's and uh, it seemed like McLuhan, it gets a little mystical. And I actually wrote this quote down. He talks about, uh, I have to find my notes here. Um, instantaneous feedback to the point of uh, global telepathy in a way when we're just further enough along on this electronic revolution to where we're all kind of tuned into each other mm -hmm. um and i think the the interviewer says that sounds a little mystical and he says mysticism is just tomorrow's science dream today <laughs> yeah. and uh well keep keep in mind that um you know, understanding media, the subtitle is The Extensions of Man. Understanding media, The Extensions of Man. And this was how he defined what a medium is. It's an extension of some human aspect, uh, ability or faculty, right? Uh, an extension of ourselves. That, that's that part of the tetrad, the amplification or extension. Mm. That's what media are for, what they do, what we create them for. Um, and in understanding media, he said, you know, so this is this is what we do as, as humans is that we we externalize all our, our abilities in order to amplify them. Mm. And so, you know, something is, you know, speech um, externalized our thought or communication so that we could, you know, more easily talk to each other and then, you know, adding that electronic or with writing to be able to move beyond you know my mouth to your ear i can write something and send it further you know and then electronically we can call each other and talk across the globe or what we're doing now you know it's all this cascading thing and um leading to you know cutlery and cups which you know we don't have to use our hand under a tap or to scoop water out we make a cup and you know it's we we've gradually been um, replicating all our human functions uh, outside of ourselves, outside of our body. And what Marshall said in the in the introduction to understanding media is we're we're rapidly approaching the final phase of the extensions of man, which is the simulation of consciousness, where the human act of knowing will be you know instantaneously experienced around the globe with all people and things. Um, we haven't gotten there yet. No. Uh, and, you know, Marshall is very careful. You know, if you look carefully at what he's saying, he's not saying he's not a cheerleader for this stuff. And he's not a doomsayer either. Uh, and this is an important distinction. You know, he said, whenever you talk about something, people assume you're in favor of it. But uh, in my case, the opposite is almost always true. You know, he was... He was actually not, he was a book guy. Like he taught English literature his whole career. He loved poetry and he just really want, he would rather be in like the 17th, 18th century. He would be very happy, but he said, but I'm not, I'm here. And I, so I want to understand what's happening around me. You know, even if I'd rather not participate, um, what are you going to do? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so as far as what's coming next, um, we haven't quite got there yet. Some people think, um, 
this thing called the singularity uh, might be approaching it, or you know, the Internet of Things is somewhat a bit about this. You know, we've made all these extensions of of ourselves, and now they're kind of talking to each other. And oh God, they're going to take over. Well, I mean, they've they've already take over, taken over. You know, <laughs> take take a hard look at at what the cell phone has, the smartphone has created and tell us that technology hasn't already taken over. Like it, it tell us that didn't take over with the printing press. You know, it's, this is panic doesn't help anybody. And this is uh, Marshall's point is once you, he said, understanding is not a point of view. He said this in understand media too. Uh, you know, point of view, you know, visual space, one thing at a time, a point mm. of view. He said, understanding is, is, is a simultaneous thing that involves all of your senses and all of your being. Uh, and it's, uh, it's when you take a point of view, like a moral point of view, it blinds you to understanding the nature of the thing. So while he might have private opinions, and he certainly did, I mean, the man was a Catholic, a uh, pretty hardcore one at that. He definitely had, had points of view. But um, when it came to understanding innovation, technology, and culture, um, he he tried his hardest to have the widest perspective possible because that's the only way to approach something as complicated as uh, as media, as technology. And maybe that comes back to what you brought up earlier: how earlier in his career he thought these things are too complicated to ever hope to to understand, much less control. Um, I think he recognized uh, that he was limiting his thinking. And when he opened it up, uh, when he used not just psychology, not just mechanics, uh, engineering, not just literature, when he used all these things together to approach a problem, then he he found uh, understanding to be possible. So like multiple, almost like multiple points of view to understand the problem. There's something about that point of view, which really emphasizes like that uh, specificity of visual space right there versus the more gestalt acoustic space. And going in different directions with all this. But it, it's amazing. He, he knew this rapid change. He predicted it. Uh, or maybe he just saw that it was already happening, creating an identity crisis, which was going to lead to the prospect for violence, um, which is, I think, kind of basically the world we're, we're in today. But, well, I'm going to read this quote because it's, it's, it's really far into the future, but it's really quite beautiful, I think. It's, I expect to see the coming decades transform the planet into an art form. The new man linked into a cosmic harmony that transcends time and space will sensuously caress and mold and pattern every facet of the terrestrial artifact as if it were a work of art and man himself will become an organic art form. I don't know what else to say, but I can, I can see where he's going with that. Um, well, where he's kind of going with that is um, there was somebody by the name of Eric Havelock Mm. Eric Havelock uh, and Marshall were kind of colleagues for a little while. They were certainly contemporaries. And Havelock wrote a book called Preface to Plato. And in, in Preface to Plato, Eric Havelock um, looks at and examines the, 
the consciousness, the state of mind of the Greek people before the invention, the innovation of uh, the alphabet and writing. And uh, so Marshall learned a lot of things uh, from, from that work and he recommended every chance he got and I recommend it still so vital because um, what he found, and you talked about, you know, um, the three major, uh, you know, ages of man, if you want to say it like that, human ages. Um, Marshall found that the description of uh, the world experienced by the pre-literate Greeks, very much like uh, the description of our world today in uh in a post-literate condition. And again, um, just like uh, TV didn't kill radio, um, you know, it didn't kill print either. It's still here, but it's it's not in command. It's not running things. The effects of print are not um, at work shaping us today the way they were. Um, so pre, you know, the oral society, as they call it, has, has a lot in common with um, the post post-industrial uh, post-electric uh, age people um and to that quote um you know that describes a little bit uh the, what marshall called it, tribal peoples right oral cultures people uh pre-literate um marshall is basically just taking that and extending it to the entire world right where instead of tribes and independent villages, instead we're all connected with each other because it was, you know, when we talked about extensions, uh, our various technologies as extensions, he viewed electricity as an extension of our nervous system. Mm. And this is this is why, so we've put our nervous system outside of our bodies on a planetary scale. And think about, think about yourself. What would happen if um, you took your sensitivities, your nerves, and put them on the outside of your skin rather than on the inside? You know, uh, it would be very uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and that is, to say the least, and that accounts for a lot of things. We're very raw. You know, we mm. have no... No, not the protections that we used to. Uh, it's it's hard to um, hard to encounter something and not react, right? It's hard to have any kind of objectivity to stand aside from something, to act uh, without reacting. You know all these things. Right. No. I'm so I'm getting like. I I think it's not uncommon for folks to think of the internet as the, as a global brain. But now we're talking about the electrical grid as kind of a global nervous system. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. And and it's, so it's this, yeah, this electrification um, is also the words that come to mind is is that I that I saw used is retribalization, but yet the the retribalization is is somehow different it's not like we're just going back in time to tribal man and in fact he talks about taking what we've gotten from this uh 
phonetic printing press age um and and taking that with us as we move forward yeah um, i mean that's why it's that's why i say it has a lot in common with mm. you, know, you know retrieves that but in a different form and it's uh, it's it's going to necessarily be different because we're different today you know and our world is different um but you know all these new major technologies um they they impose their structure on the old structure and all of a sudden the old structure um doesn't make a lot of sense you know doesn't seem right you know like it's it's pretty obvious in the u.s because um you know the united states is uh, is an interesting example it's uh, it was formed on um on the book you know democracy look around compare an american city with a european city and just superficially it's pretty obvious that in the american city you've got everything laid out neat and orderly on a grid right. and everything in its place whereas the european city is like all over the place and kind of you know a whole mess range of things you know it's not by logic, but by resonance and, and all these things. American democracy, too, was founded on, on print, on the speed of print. You know, the whole notion of uh, us electing a person to take our interest to Washington because we couldn't possibly all go there, you know, that's kind of not the case anymore. We don't need to hire somebody to delegate our authority to for every little thing uh when you know we could we can be there by the phone or by the click of a mouse or or anything much more easily um one of the difficulties with making change is that regulation moves at the speed of print uh law moves at the speed of print and innovation moves at the speed of light how can the two things hope yeah. to to keep pace? You know, it's, but by the time we come up with laws to to do things, you know, things have already progressed well past that. So we have a a, a lot of a lot of challenges. Um, but again, I think I think we're we're pretty smart people, and if if we put our our minds and our best intentions to it, um, I think we can probably turn things around at least a little bit why not give it a shot <laughs> exactly what, what strikes me is is we talk about tribal man or the word i would use is like the collective mm. and then as we moved into phonetics and the alphabet and the printing press we we moved towards the individual and um it seems like we're moving towards some kind of amalgamation of the individual within the collective, um, this retribalization. Because uh, so, there's something about the individual and the industrial society, but yet the individual has a certain amount of conformity um, that the industrial society imposes on it. And he seems to see a world in which uh, there's a tribal collective that allows for great individuality and creativity um it's quite a tension there yeah i uh just again wrapping my head around all this and, and and visualizing what it looks like and seeing how how we'll get there it's very exciting well you know it um there's a lot here and uh understanding 
is rarely an instant thing. It's a process, you know? Um, when I was a kid and I, I understood that, you know, my grandfather was a little different than other kids' grandfathers because people seemed to know who he was, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, that was kind of a weird thing. Uh, so, so as a teenager, um, I tried to read Understanding Media and I didn't, I didn't get very far, you know? Uh, so I gave it up as a bad job, kind of joined, started a punk rock band and all the rest of it. Uh, I was more interested in poetry. And then in my 20s, um, you know, I wanted to, to give it another shot. So I read Understanding Media again or tried to. And I got some, I got further, um, but still, you know, I was like, what? No, what? I don't know. Anyway, went and did my own thing. Uh, <laughs> and then in my, in, in my early 30s, um, well, you know, because people always ask you, oh, you're McLuhan, Marsh McLuhan. Yeah. So what does the medium is the message mean? It's like, I don't know, read a flipping book. You know, why are you asking me? <laughs> why are you asking me? Right? It's like. I'm just the grandson over here. It's, I didn't ask, you know, I didn't volunteer for this anyway. Um, but in my thirties, uh, you know, maybe I was mature enough or had enough under my belt and I grew up around the stuff, um, following my dad around and helping him in his travel and speeches and stuff. It, it made sense for the first time and it, something clicked and if you've ever had an epiphany, you know, if you've ever been reading something or doing something and all of a sudden something clicks into place, you know, that feeling like, mm -hmm. oh, oh, shit. Oh, man. I, yeah. Okay. Whoa. Like, that's a powerful experience. And, you know, I think that's a uniquely human experience. And what a, what a wonderful thing it is. But it's also addictive. You know, it's like, okay, I want more. You know, ah. yeah. So I started to get more and more involved in this stuff, and you know, the way I see it, it, it's so deep. I mean, just in the hour, whatever we've been talking, we've covered so much stuff. I'm sure your head is swimming, and if anybody is still listening to this, they're probably swimming as well. It takes time. It takes time, and we don't give ourselves the time anymore. There's one reason I love living in the country here. I live between farms. It's like I can go for a walk and I can have a, a fruitful distraction, like looking at a field and watching my dog run around in it, as opposed to like, you know, distractions that just distract you. <laughs> um, you know, there are ways that we can hold just enough of our attention so that we can wander and, and, and be fruitful. But um, you know, don't expect, you don't have to understand everything at once. It's a process. Uh, take a little bit and build, let it build. I mean, I, I don't pretend to understand all this stuff either. Maybe I sound like I do, but I, you know, I don't, I might listen to this in five years and think, oh man, I wasn't quite there yet, <laughs> you know? Um, but um, I, I think that learning this understanding is, is a process we help each other through it and we have to have <clears throat> a certain amount of humility and a certain amount of courage uh to keep going admit you know that we don't understand everything and that we do our best and take it piece by piece enjoy our our triumphs and and use them and um you know 
come back to fight another day. Absolutely. That's that's what I, I'll go back to that Playboy interview is that I'm really able to go in depth for about five pages. And then I kind of keep reading, but I'm just kind of letting it soak in and, and yeah. permeate. And I can the next time I read it, I can get about five pages further with in-depth reading. But I'm still reading and letting the rest of it permeate and, and soak in. But um, there's so much there to wrap your head around. I've really discovered how um, how helpful and powerful it is to engage in this process in community. Mm. Um, so I do this understanding media course through gray area in San Francisco. Um, and essentially I, it's, it's like a jacked up reading group with like the DVD extras thrown in live. So like I, I do it from my library, which was my dad's library. And, um, you know, as I said, understanding media is like this co- condensed poetic object. And when you start to pick it apart, it grows. It's like one of those um, little dinosaur toys you get for your kid and you put it in water and you watch it expand to 50 times its original size kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the benefit of doing it here in the library is all these all these little mentions that Marshall makes, uh, most of them I've got the books in my library. So I read and we stop when he quotes this like Havelock or something and I pull the book off and we examine the context around the quote and where it came from and why Marshall used it. Um, we pull out other parts of McLuhan work that might bring to bear on the subject and help us understand it. Um, and another, a great thing is I found is when I started, I didn't think I wasn't going to give assignments. You know, it's like no homework. We're just going to do this thing. But the students kind of asked for it. So it's like, well, okay, that's kind of weird, but okay. Well, one thing I discovered was that um, assignments, completing homework, uh, is such a helpful thing because it's one thing to think you understand something. It's quite another thing to externalize that and to actually activate that knowledge by trying to relate it to something else, you know? And so I give these assignments based on something in the chapter that we're reading, and, but I leave it very, very broad. I say, write me one page on it, write a song, do a dance, mm. make a short video, anything. I don't care what, because uh, the challenge is in creating, <laughs> creating your own system of little metaphors in order to relate to that material. Because as Marshall said, every word in every language is a metaphor. So it's something which is a bridge between one thing and another thing. That's what a metaphor is. Every word is a metaphor for an idea, an emotion, whatever. Um, but the, there's such power in that creative process of making, of completing an assignment that really cements that knowledge. Um, and it's a, it's a very, very useful and powerful thing. So um, it's great to, you know, to read on your own and, and explore on your own, but I've found the power of doing it um, in a in even with a with one partner. Um, but the best way is to bring in a group of people from different backgrounds and uh, and mm. share the assignments with each other um, because each each one of those points of view is going to help you to create that fuller picture of understanding right. for yourself. 
Fantastic. That, that reminds me, we have a lot of joy scholars in our community, and oh, they yeah. often talk about the uh, benefits of studying Finnick, Finnegan's Wake in a group mm. and getting that you multiple know, perspective. Marshall called his work Applied Joyce. Right. Yeah. Right. And then there was, he was a footnote to uh, someone. Ennis. Uh, Ennis. Yeah, that's one that hadn't cropped up on my radar, but I. I did see the the influence of Joyce and I believe Vico as well. Oh yeah, Laws of Media draws a lot from Vico's Cienza Nuova and from Bacon's Novum Organon. Uh, both of those titles translate to the new science. And uh, what do you suppose the subtitle of Laws of Media is? The new science of media. The new science. <laughs> the new science. Yeah, for, wow. for good reason. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I hardly recommend. Um, this is very next level, but my dad put in a book in 2011 called Theories of Communication. Um, I use it in my Understanding Media course um, because there's an essay in there uh, called Marshall McLuhan's Theory of Communication, which is so helpful. And um, there's also another essay by Eric McLuhan called um, McLuhan and Joyce, um, mm. which is uh, will interest the Joyce people. Yeah. So what would you say on that note? You say that's kind of an intermediate theories of communication and for like introductory, I'll put the vote in for the yeah. Playboy interview. The yeah. Other... Um, really a great way is uh, go on YouTube and type in Marshall McLuhan and okay. watch some of the interviews. Um, the interviews probably maybe some speeches. It's a lot of fun to watch um, what they call the, the Norman Mailer, Marshall McLuhan debate. Okay. Uh, you know, Marshall was, was really, he was really something um, is almost a, he was so witty uh, and clever, but fast, fast thinking. Like he thought on his feet and he, it was like a chess player. You know, he was always a couple moves ahead of everybody else. And it's really funny. He also had this uncanny understanding of, of the medium that he was in. Um, if you read Marshall McLuhan in print, if you watch Marshall McLuhan being interviewed, you're encountering different McLuhans because he's, he's very much molding um, his output to that form. Uh, the Mailer, uh, McLuhan-Norman Mailer debate is a great... Um, if you can step back and, and pay uh, a little bit less attention to what's being said and watch how Marshall is behaving, it's, it's funny because Norman Mailer is like getting more and more worked up and upset and Marshall is getting more and more relaxed and chilled out about it. It's, it's really something else. Interesting. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of great stuff. This is the, um, the privilege for me uh, in, in having somebody like Marshall McLuhan as my grandfather, he died when I was just over two years old. So I didn't really get to know him when I was a kid, but he's everywhere and I can get to know him as an adult. And what a lucky me. Yeah, very cool. There's so much of him to soak in posthumously. That's excellent. And there was, so just to back up a step, there was a, another video with Bucky Fuller, if I understand correctly. That's oh, out there. there is, there's a really fun uh, recording of uh, 
Buckminster Fuller, Marshall McLuhan, and W.H. Auden uh, on a panel together discussing television. And one of my favorite bits from that is uh, (laughs) Auden says, he's a playwright. He says, I don't don't have a television. I wouldn't dream of having one. And Marshall says, well, you merely suffer the consequences without enjoying any of the benefits. Because here's the thing. You don't have a smartphone. Good for you. You right. still live in. You still live today, where our society is ruled by the smartphone. So it, you don't need to have one to feel its effects. To live, to in live the smartphone world, right? Wow. That's why the medium is the message. Yeah, I mean, it, the, it's a bit apocryphal, you know. The the supposed story is that it was a typographic is typesetter's error and it came back and said massage instead of message and marshall said oh no no no, that's perfect leave it because you know it's the medium that works us over and puts us to sleep and okay uh, you know marshall um marshall paraphrase marshall kind of used elliot in understanding media when he said that content is the juicy piece of meat used by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind you know mm. and what he meant by that is that the more the more we we get obsessed with the content, um, the less we pay attention to the environment, right? Right. Yeah. So it's the that's why media literacy um, is of limited use because uh, if you take away content, media literacy has very little to talk about. Media literacy is all about who's what what somebody's trying to manipulate into doing what their agenda is, how they're doing it, what their objectives are, um, how that's influencing your purchasing decisions, your political decisions, all of that. And that's helpful. That's important. It's good to know, you know, (laughs) we should know that kind of stuff so that we can not be taken advantage of so overtly, but all of that stuff is, is beside um, how the media is reshaping us by nature of the environment it creates. And then just along those lines, would you say understanding media then is kind of the, I don't know if masterwork is the right word, but kind of the the graduate level studies here? Definitely. Uh, Understanding media and then laws of media. Laws of media. Understanding media, although laws of media was written, was written very much for an academic audience, kind of unfortunately. Um, Understanding media, uh, was developed from, uh, Marshall was hired to develop an under, um, a high school curriculum mm. for understanding new media in 1958. And he delivered that as the report on the project in understanding new media in 1960. And then he spent four years reworking it and published it as Understanding Media, the Extensions of Man. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the title actually says it, Understanding Media. Uh, it it suggests that we can actually do that, and it go ahead. It goes ahead and tells us how. Um, if you look at the book, it's it's two parts. If you look at the table of contents, part one is seven chapters, part two is twenty six, mm. uh, and you may notice that there are twenty six letters of the alphabet, and uh-huh. you may find that significant. Uh, you might also notice that there are seven liberal arts and seven chapters on the first hand on the first part. Um, the part one is seven chapters giving us tools 
perspectives, ways of looking at and understanding the nature and the effects of technologies. Part two is 26 chapters, taking those tools and applying them to specific technologies like clothing, like housing, like print, speech, radio, television. Uh, Automation is the final chapter. Um, Mm. So understanding media, you know, here's how. It's a bit of a a guidebook, um, but it's disguised um, as a a bit of poetry. And there's a reason for that. It comes back to um, the process of of insight and understanding. Um, It forces you to be part of that process because you have to unpack so much. Unpacking just means being involved in the creation, right? Mm. Uh, Some assembly required, right? And when you're involved in it, like when you complete the assignment, um, you become part of that process and it becomes meaningful in a way where when things are are written out um, that leave little for you to do except consume it, um, it's not as generative in terms of helping you to come to understanding. And that's why, like with Finnegan's Wake, um, read it now and read it next year and you'll have different different outcomes. I've read that book now several times. I've taught it all the way through once and I'm coming through a second time and I'm still learning more from it because there's so much there's so much room for you to be part of the process of uh, making that uh, understanding. Mm, powerful. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Nope. Uh, boy, I'm out of questions at this point. I probably have plenty, but, uh, where can we find you on the internet? Um, uh, you know, I I have a website, McLuhanInstitute.com. It's, it's pretty, pretty basic. Big thanks to my brother-in-law, Scott, for what's there. Uh, one of these days, um, when I have some money, I'll have to hire somebody to help make it an actual thing. Um, the newsletter is, I'm hoping, going to be a pretty cool thing. That's on Substack. Um, maybe I've got tmitm.com, and that might turn into something one of these days soon. TMITM stands for the medium is the message. Ah, yeah, TMI, the McLuhan Institute. You know, too much information. We like to have a bit of fun here, Little of course. You know. Plays on words. Yeah. Um, if you go to the McLuhan Institute, institute.com it has links to um i put a lot of things on twitter and instagram i have a patreon account that i should probably attend more to if i want to you know get some things done um i'm pretty easy to find online or mail me a letter okay we'll make sure and get all those links in the show notes and you this class you're teaching on understanding media it's it's in the middle it sounds like you're about to go through like a second phase of yeah so it's it's divided into three parts uh part one um goes through part one of the book those first seven chapters and then parts two and three of the course tackle um the rest of the chapters but because it's it's 26 chapters so we do 13 at a time take a break so that should be starting hopefully early October. 
part two for this Yeah, fall. check out. Uh, if you sign up for grayarea.org's newsletter, you'll you'll get uh, a notice when it starts. And is that something that's open to anyone? Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, no experience required. My students tend to be from all around the world, and I have, like, man, all kinds of people, just, like, from Uber drivers to professors emeritus. Like everybody, uh, people who are intrigued by the work and want to try and understand it more, um, come in and we kind of make that happen together. Nice. All right. Well, Andrew, this has been fantastic. I, I deeply appreciate your time. I really enjoyed the discussion. Um, any final words? So um, I'll end with this. There's, it's really hard to slow down. Um, but when we slow down, the quality of our experience changes. You know, you have to stop to smell the roses, right? Uh, it's, it's hard to get much from them in passing. It's like um, I, I use kind of the example of, of going to the post office. Uh, when I lived in the town nearby, I could walk to the post office. It took about, it's about a five-minute walk. Um, but the difficulty was that... Uh, you know, I'd run into Pat and then I'd run into Julie and, you know, to be polite, you have to, and you want to catch up, you stop and say hi. And 20 minutes later, you might get to the post office. Or I can hop into my car and I can be there in two minutes and get the mail and go home. Um, but the quality of the experience is much different, even if the object and the outcome is sort of the same. Um, how do we slow down? Uh, when our brains are going a million miles an hour uh, and, you know, we suffer the, the consequences of that, you know, we're stressed out, we're nervous, we're anxious as hell. Well, one way to do it is, you know, you ever, you ever drive through the mountains and you see these signs, truck use lower gear, you know, high grain. Mm. Well, you can gear down your mind. Use lower and, gears. And one way to do it is this. For example, I can type about 80 words a minute and I can write about 40. Uh, they're, they're, different, they're different exercises. They'll both have the same sort of object, but the nature of what you produce will be different. And uh, the thing is, um, writing, slowing down your hand slows down your mind because you have to slow down your thoughts in order to keep pace with your pen or pencil or what have you. And try and experiment. Write a page every day for a week. You know, make that a letter to somebody, make that a journal entry, make that just sit down and describe the things you see around your room, but write a page a day and see if you notice anything different. And I think you will. Mm. Um, so if you feel like you can't slow down, if, if you know, this pace is, is too fast, um, but engineer strategies to help you slow down because you can, and they're around us. Um, it's, it's also the same with reading. You read a lot faster on a screen. You tend to skip and skim and scroll. And mm. when you look at a book, um, you have a different experience. It's a bit easier uh, to slow down and to to take things a little bit differently. Um, so 
you know, I'm all about uh, empowering ourselves and uh, finding ways to solve the problems that we're facing. Um, and yeah, stop and smell the roses. It smells nice out there. And I love that. Really appreciate the tools. I had a, a teacher one time tell me to an essential component of mindfulness is slowing down. Uh-huh. And a lot of what we've been talking about, raising awareness, bringing mindfulness in, slowing down, and providing some practical tools on how to do that. So thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for your time once again. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to Andrew McLuhan for taking the time to chat with me. And thank you to Christina Pearson and Richard Ross of Laritas Press. Thank you to Ryan Reeves for putting it all together. Our next episode, releasing on the 23rd of November, will feature Claude Shannon biographers Jimmy Sawney and Rob Goodman. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e hilaritas.